Squeezing into a crowded subway car is one way to rub elbows with your fellow New Yorkers, but it's certainly not the most dignified and probably not the most efficient if you want to entertain a conversation with someone of a like mind and status. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. New York City is home to a wide variety of clubs where you can mix and mingle with people with similar interests and backgrounds, some more exclusive than others. In fact, the city has a rich history of elite social clubs dating back to the 1830s. Author, historian, and tour guide James Nevius recently wrote all about that history in an article for the New York City Neighborhoods and Real Estate blog, Curbed NY. He joins me now on the phone. James, thanks for taking the time. It's my pleasure, George. So what inspired you to write about New York City's social clubs and their history? Well, I was actually writing a story about uh, New York City landmarks. Uh, As you know, it's the 50th anniversary of the landmarks law. And early on in that process, some buildings were landmarked that then, for lack of a better word, got de-landmarked. And one of those was a mansion on Madison Square called the Jerome Mansion. And in my research for that story, I realized that towards the end of its life, the Jerome Mansion had been used by a couple of different private membership clubs. And it got me thinking about just how prevalent those clubs are in New York City. So I pitched uh, a story to my editor uh, about, you know, let's start find out how did these clubs come to be and uh, why are, why are there so, so many of them still around in New York City today? How many of them are still around in New York City today? You know, that's an excellent question. At their peak, uh, there were hundreds of clubs in New York City, especially if you expand the idea of a private club to include sort of fraternal organizations. Uh, But in 1902, a book came out called Club Men of New York that detailed the memberships in 157 clubs in which 38,000 New Yorkers of memberships. Now, some of those were the same person who was a member of many clubs, and some people were only a member of one club. It's not 157 private clubs today, but it's still at least half that number, if not more. So let's talk about these social clubs. A lot of people might not be familiar with them, never stepped foot in one. How would you describe them? All social clubs have a sort of connection uh, in that they're, the, the primary word is social. These are clubs that were organized initially so that men only could have a place to get together and talk to each other and play cards and see each other on equal footing outside the halls of business. Now, that doesn't mean that business wasn't taking place inside the corridors of the clubs, but it was supposed to be a place where people who of shared tastes and interests could see each other, and, you know, we still have expressions about being, you know, part of the in crowd or being a member of the club. Uh, It really was a mark that you had made it. So these are people of a certain economic status. Absolutely. When the clubs first began back in the 1850s, uh, they had very limited membership. Uh, The Union Club, which is the oldest club in the city, I think started out really only wanting 250 members so that they would be 250 of the right people. And that certainly means, you know, upper economic level, people who already all knew each other in some way. 
So the Union Club was the first club. I know that 400 was once a magic number for this club as well, right? Correct. So after they got their initial cohort of 250 members, they expanded to 400, and that became a kind of cutoff for many of the private clubs in New York City. And as I write in the story, I find it intriguing that they picked the number 400 because for a long time, New York High Society was known as the 400. And the story has always been that that was the number of people who could fit in Caroline Skirmerhorn Astor's ballroom. If you could get on her invite list to go to her fancy party, and it was it was the biggest party of the year, uh, you were in the 400. So I find it intriguing that that was also the cutoff for a lot of these early clubs, that there were 400 people that were worth knowing in New York City. Back in the day, the Astors were among the who's who, the Vanderbilts, the Morgans, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, the clubs were established so that the social scene that took place in New York City and in Newport in the summer could also take place on a daily basis for these sort of robber barons who were doing business with each other. So as you mentioned, the Union Club was the first club. They had a cap at 400. So I would imagine that others started to sprout up because once the Union Club reached 400, people had to go somewhere. That's correct. So a few clubs started up early on uh, that are now gone. There was a a club called the New York Club that was kind of a rival. Uh, The New York Yacht Club, uh, which for years held the America's Cup, uh, was started for, for people who were interested in in yachting, you didn't actually have to have a boat to be a member, but you had to be part of that scene. And then it kind of moved into, especially after the Civil War, uh, that Ivy League schools started alumni clubs. And there were arts and letters organizations like the Century Association. And there was suddenly a boom in the 1870s, 60s and 70s of private clubs all over the city. Manhattan was largely downtown during that time, right? Not uptown. That's correct. When Caroline Skirmerhorn Astor had that ballroom that would only accommodate 400 people, her house was at the corner of 5th Avenue and 34th Street. And she looked north at a field of wheat. 34th Street was absolutely the upper barrier of the city for a lot of people until the Civil War. And so all of the clubs had a tendency to cluster downtown, especially around the Union Square area. But today we will find some of these clubs uptown, right? They eventually moved. Yes. The people moved. That magic barrier at 34th Street was removed. The Vanderbilts in particular staked out a claim to living on Fifth Avenue around 59th Street. And one by one, the clubs just started to seem too far downtown and they would move. And so you, you look at the history of a club like the Union Club, and it's on Lower Broadway, and then it's around Union Square, and then it's on 21st Street, then it moves to Fifth Avenue in the 50s, and then finally today uh, comes to rest on Park Avenue in the 60s. How elaborate is the construction of some of these clubs? Well, at its peak, which I would say is the 1880s through about 1915, Some of these clubs are just incredible. Charles Fallon McKim, who was one-third of the famous uh, architecture team, McKim, Mead, and White, built the University Club, uh, which is still standing on Fifth Avenue. And it's just incredibly elaborate, both inside and out. The outside of the University Club, which is decorated with the shields 
and the coats of arms of various different clubs and, and all of this incredible decoration. It's sheathed in granite, uh, just incredible from the outside. And then once you step inside, the detailing is fantastic. Uh, his partner, Stanford White, built the Metropolitan Club specifically for J.P. Morgan, incredibly sumptuous inside. Is the original Union Club still standing, the building? Well, the, all of the original Union Clubs are gone. The only one that still stands is the one that's at 69th and Park. Uh, and that's true of most of the downtown clubs. A couple, a couple of clubs on Gramercy Park, the Players and the National Arts Club, have survived all these years. But other than that, the downtown clubs are basically gone. How would you say the dynamic of these clubs have changed in comparison to when they started? Well, one big dynamic is that all of these clubs started as all-male bastions. And because of the passage of, I think it's Local Law 63, in the 1980s, uh, they were all opened up to women. Uh, Some of them willingly. Uh, Some clubs, like the National Arts Club, had admitted women from the start. But most of these clubs did not allow women to come in, and many of them fought tooth and nail to exclude women. And Local Law 63 eventually wended its way up to the Supreme Court, who in 1988 decided that even though these were private clubs, they were essentially public institutions and therefore could not discriminate uh, by gender. And so they have all become co-ed. Now, some of these clubs are still discriminating, though, right? Because I know that when Mike Bloomberg was running for mayor, he resigned from some city clubs because they were mostly white. Yes, they don't. Of course, no club officially discriminates on race, but many clubs do continue to be predominantly male and predominantly white. And Bloomberg, who was part of the sort of demographic that a clubman would be in the late 20th century, uh, just decided it was going to be easier to run for mayor if he didn't have all these club memberships than if he did. Now, it's interesting, of course, when these clubs were founded, Mayor Bloomberg is Jewish, he would have been excluded from almost all of them. Hmm. Uh, So that's one thing that has changed. So how does one become a member of one of these clubs? Is it something that you've had to have been born into? Anyone pretty much can be nominated for membership in one of these clubs. The key is knowing the right people. For most clubs, and every club has their own different sort of ins and outs of how this works, but for most clubs, the basic idea is that someone who is already a member sponsors you, someone else who is already a member seconds that nomination, and then a certain number of club members, it could be one, two, ten, say, yes, I know this person and they're worthy of membership. The way this works in practice is that for you to get letters of recommendation from club members, you need to spend time at the club. And so your sponsoring member brings you in for lunch, for events, for various things that are happening. Uh, So it's a way for the club to generate income. You have to keep coming back over and over again. And then eventually you meet all the right people and your uh, application goes through. I would imagine there are dues involved, and those dues can be pretty expensive. They can, though, when you compare club dues at a New York City private club to, say, country club fees, they're actually quite reasonable. Most of these clubs own their buildings outright. Because they are 501c7 nonprofits, many of them don't pay taxes. So they're 
they are able to keep their dues at a reasonable level in the low thousands of dollars a year rather than, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year. What do you think the future of these clubs will be in New York City? Do you think that it will attract young peoples or millennials going and wanting to be members of a club like this? Well, that is definitely an issue, is that convincing people that going to a club rather than going to a bar or going to another place to hang out or just sitting at home watching Netflix uh, is the thing to do. Most of these clubs, as I said before, are 501c7s, which under the tax law means that they are social and recreational clubs. And they have to maintain that tax-exempt status by doing things that are, in fact, social, putting on events that are just for members, doing things that bring the membership together in a fraternal way. So the advantage that the clubs have is that they can put on programming that perhaps you won't get anywhere else uh, and use that to attract a new generation of members. James, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. James Nevius is an author, historian, and tour guide. He wrote an article titled The Rise and Fall of New York City's Private Social Clubs for the blog Curbed NY. Harmony Club is one of the oldest private social clubs in New York City. Founded in 1852, the club is still active today. I recently had the chance to sit down with its current president. My name is Phil Cowan, and I am president of the Harmony Club of the City of New York. How long have you been president of this club now? About a year and a half. So what are the benefits of membership? In the city of New York, uh, considering the size and the scope and the diversity, uh, what uh, membership in the Harmony Club, first and foremost, is it is a social club. Also, dining is a major uh, consideration. While this is not the uh, era of the uh, Mad Men, two martinis, lunch of the 50s and 60s, and uh, uh, lunch is often taken at one's desk, nevertheless, uh, dining is very important because dining uh, is not only a means of socializing, uh, it's also a means of unwinding at the end of the day. It means getting together with friends, and uh, that's very important to the members of this club. This is the second oldest social club in New York City, correct? That is correct. But we have one distinction of having the oldest continuous liquor license in the city of New York. Is that right? That's correct. The Union Club was the first club. What's the history of this club? How much can you tell me about that? Well, the club was founded uh, well over 160 years ago by uh, actually German Jews that uh, were looking for uh, a social outlet for their singing and entertaining. And uh, the Harmony Club, uh, actually it was, there was a name in German, but uh, now it's, spelled, it's Harmony, H-A-R-M-O-N-I-E. Uh, but it started out as a uh, singing and social club down in lower Manhattan. Uh, it was quite successful. It moved up into the 40s a number of years ago. Uh, pre-World War II, uh, actually uh, before the turn of the uh, previous century, and moved into these quarters in 1905. I read that there was a basement bowling alley here once. Is that true? That's correct. That uh, uh, bowling was more in vogue than it uh, than it is today, but that's true. It was a bowling alley, and then uh, subsequently converted into uh, a swimming pool spa area where which it serves uh, in that purpose today. 
How many members strong is this club today? We have slightly over a thousand members. That's quite a few. That's quite a few. It consists primarily of uh, resident members, but we also have a classification for out-of-town members, and we have a classification for junior members. But it's primarily made up of a regular membership. How does one become a member of a club like this? We have a uh, membership uh, procedure. There's an application that is prepared. One must have a sponsor and uh, a seconder to apply for uh, membership in the club. And then uh, the application uh, requests certain information as to, as to uh, place of residence, place of work, uh, uh, educational background, and uh, knowledge of uh, club members. I know this is a private club, but let me ask you, how diverse is the membership in terms of what people do, their walks of life? The membership of Harmony reasonably reflects from a professional uh, standpoint uh, what you see in, in New York City. New York is primarily, uh, uh, well, it, it's becoming more and more diverse all the time, but uh, typically and historically, uh, membership has, uh, for the most part, been from uh, either the professions, law, medicine, accounting, uh, from the uh, financial services, and from real estate. That said, we have entrepreneurs, we have corporate executives, we have uh, uh, any variety of, uh, from the educational fields. We seek diversity. It's very important to us. Uh, we are, according to our bylaws, which uh, were uh, designed and uh, uh, actually recently uh, amended uh, to ensure we have diversity. For example, membership includes uh, spouse or uh, what we refer to as constant companions, so that uh, membership is enjoyed by, uh, by if, if they are couples, it's enjoyed equally by, most, by both uh, members, be it a uh, spouse or a uh, constant companion. Uh, we have uh, individuals of uh, every uh, possible religious or uh, uh, ethnic uh, consideration as uh, members of this club. I mean, I guess I would be remiss not to bring it up, but social clubs like this sometimes get a bad rap, would you say, for not being as diverse, for being somewhat discriminatory? What would you say to folks who sort of bring that kind of thing up? That was certainly something that uh, might have existed in the past. I think that social clubs uh, reflect the feelings and uh, requirements and uh, ethics of its members. And uh, the members of Harmony Club are a diverse lot. They are liberal in their thinking uh, in that regard. And today, uh, this uh, membership is, is open to everyone, as it has been for quite some time. You mentioned that this club was founded by German Jews. It was a club of German Jews. And in fact, it has a very, very interesting history. Even Albert Einstein was here, right? Albert Einstein used the Harmony Club to draw attention to the persecution of Jews by the Nazis. That's correct. That's correct. Actually, there's a placard outside on the sidewalk. It doesn't refer to the building we're in, but it's the next door building was a place where uh, during World War II, various Jewish organizations had their headquarters. So there, there's a, a history of that. 
What would you say impresses you most or inspires you most or just surprises you most about the history of this club? Given the length of time that this club has been in operation in New York, and as we talked earlier, we are the second uh, oldest social club in New York City, uh, it doesn't surprise me, but uh, the fact that this club has been able to adjust to meet the needs and to be relevant to its membership during that period of time. When, when we talk about the, the Harmony Club, given the date that it started, uh, we're talking about uh, Civil War times. We're talking about uh, a club that existed in New York City even before the advent of the automobile. And the automobile, of course, was something that had a tremendous impact on social clubs because it now people were more mobile. They might spend their summers in Westchester and not be in the city. And through all this period of time, through the automobile, through the airplane, through the jet age, through so many twists and turns and wars and depressions, the club has managed to not only exist but to prosper. And part of that is the fact that the membership is a cohesive group. The membership uh, is willing to uh, support the, the needs of the club. And uh, if we look at uh, some of the history, is very interesting. During World War II, so many of its members were engaged on, in active duty in the armed forces. And uh, the other members uh, made up for the fact that uh, there was a shortfall in dues and were able to maintain the club and keep it going. And when others, uh, when those uh, uniform members came back and, and had their families, the, the club continued on. good example that you brought up before was the bowling alley uh, being replaced by a swimming pool. And it's typical that uh, if a club like this is going to survive, it deals with the leadership, the role of the president and the governing board, uh, not only deals with having the right management, not only deals that we are properly financed, but that we have the right vision and the strategy to be relevant to our members. I understand that the Harmony Club has been visited by many, many New York City mayors, many, many New York governors. That's true. That's true. We have a, uh, an audience that uh, is important to them, an audience that uh, serves as a, uh, a vehicle for... Uh, leveraging their own visions and their own policies and their own way of thinking out to uh, the uh, many people in the community that are associated with and friends of or involved in business with members of the Harmony Club. Philip, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Philip Cowan is president of the Harmony Club, one of the oldest private social clubs in the Big Apple. More info at harmonyclub.org. That's Harmony spelled H-A-R-M-O-N-I-E. Finally today, we pay a visit to another social club in New York City, this one for actors, songwriters, and others involved in the theater. It's called The Lamps, and as I found out, the list of the club's members over the years reads like a who's who of American theater and film. My name is Mark Barron. I am the shepherd, or what we call the shepherd, is the president of The Lamps. I guess it would make sense that the president of the Lambs Club would be called the Shepherd. Yes, and our vice president is called the Boy, and the person who produces an event is called the Collie, and the clubhouse is called the Fold, and the membership is called the Flock. What's the history of this organization? Well, we began as a supper club in London in 1868. 
several uh, actors there wanted to have this evening together to talk about theater. And it was named in honor of Charles and Mary Lamb. Charles Lamb is best known today for his writings on Shakespeare. And, uh, and Charles was a failed playwright, but he would often hold these dinner salons to, to talk shop. So years after he died, about 30 years after he passed away, they decided to form a club and name it in his honor. And when did it move to New York City? In early 1874, the third shepherd of the Lambs of London, Henry Montague, had moved to the United States, and uh, he missed those gatherings in London. So in the week before Christmas at the Delmonico's in 1874, they formed the Lambs here. And if you Delmonico's the restaurant. Delmonico's the restaurant, which at that time, I believe, was actually uh, south of Union Square. It was before where it's down now in Wall Street. And, uh, and they formed the Lambs of what was re referred to as the Lambs of New York. Uh, about four or five years later, the Lambs of London went out of business, and, and we were just known simply as the Lambs, and we were incorporated in New York in 1877. Officially, we are the oldest or the first of all the professional theatrical clubs. And we're working with Guinness Book to determine we think we're the oldest professional theatrical organization in the United States. How much has this club evolved over the years? Well, it's grown like all the clubs. Um, we started it. We didn't have our own clubhouse. If we used to meet at J. Lester Wallach's Theater, which is in Union Square, and then at the restaurant next to that. As the club outgrew its spaces, it would move, and it would move with theater, so it, it gradually moved up. Our biggest clubhouse was when we were on 44th Street, which was a Stanford White nine-story building. And then when there were, we have had almost 1,600 members at that time. Historically, we have over 6,000 members. And the club has a certain importance within American theater because it was Lambs who formed the Actors Fund of America. It was Lambs who formed Actors Equity. The first 21 council members of Equity, 20 of them were members of the Lambs, as were the president and the shepherd. I mean, the president and the treasurer of equity. And the name Actors' Equity was actually coined by the Shepherd of the Lambs. It was Lambs who were involved in the founding of Screen Actors Guild and AFRA. Uh, the first four presidents of Screen Actors Guild were Lambs. The first president of AFTRA, which later became AFTRA, <coughs> was a Lamb. And then even most recently, in the merger of SAG and AFTRA into SAG-AFTRA, there were two Lambs involved in that as well. Who have been among your more prominent members over the years? Oh, gee, that would take a whole show in itself. Uh, I'll hit a few. We had Rogers and Hammerstein, Rogers and Hart. Uh, Learn and Lowe met at the Lambs Club, and as a result, Lowe left us a piece of his royalties of Brigadoon. Uh, Percy Wenrich, the composer, he was a member. He left us money. We get checks constantly from him. W.C. Fields was a member when he, he did his first Broadway show 100 years ago, and he joined the Lambs. Adolf Zukor, who founded Paramount, joined the Lambs and discussed the formation of Paramount at the Lambs. Uh, Fred Astaire was a member. I, the list goes on and on. It's just so many. So what are the benefits of membership of the Lambs Club? Well, first of all, uh, like any of these clubs, we're a social club. It's a place to socialize with people that have a common background. There are people who are active in entertainment and the arts or lovers of it, you know, at the entertainment and arts, supporters. Uh, so you have that whole social aspect. And, and to that, we do events. For example, every week we do what we call low jinx, which is a happy hour. 
People come in, they have dinners, they have drinks, we throw together a one-hour little cabaret type of show, and we just have fun. Uh, we do other events. Every year we do a barbecue and a show for the Actors Fund in the fall. We're doing one in September. We do other activities up here that might interest members. There may be movie screenings, uh, persons with books coming out. We just recently did one about a new book on Edward Booth. There's a book that's just been released about the uh, cartoonist, illustrator Al Herschel. We're doing an event here for that. We do play readings here. We're doing panel events where people discuss professional aspects of the theater. And almost all of those events are free. The only time there's a charge if there's a meal included, then you're paying for that. Uh, we do have a suggested donation of $5 at some of these events for those who wish to, and that fuels our LAMS Foundation, which is supporting emerging talent and then works of theater. And then um, for the people who do perform, it's a great place to practice your craft, whether it's being in a play reading, whether it's performing. For example, I sing, and I know I have drastically improved my singing over the years from being able to perform in front of a live audience and built a huge repertoire that I can just pull out a file cabinet of beauties and, and pull out a song that I need to do for an audition or whatever. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Mark Barron is the current president of The Lambs. The club's online at the-lambs.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. One quick programming note. As of next week, Cityscape will be moving to 6.30 on Sunday mornings on 90.7 FM. But don't forget, you can find past episodes of the show at any time at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and we invite you to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.